And we'll get started. Great to see everyone this morning. We'll be continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to turn there, uh, we'll just be looking at verses 20 to 28. But we'll pray, then we'll read the passage, and then we'll see what God has in store for us. Lord, I thank you. And in one sense, I definitely feel like here we go again, but I mean that in a good way. Lord, I thank you that every Sunday, the vast majority of us find ourselves in this room, ready to learn from your word, wanting to learn from your word, and learning from your word if we submit to what the Spirit tells us. So I thank you for that. I thank you for that expectation. I thank you for that promise, really. Lord, you don't give us this stuff to confuse us. You give it to us so that we can see more of you. And that's not always easy, but that's what... If it was easy, everyone would do it. Lord, you want us to work. You want us to discern. You want us to divide the, your word, Lord, and, and know it rightly. So, and Sometimes that's John 3.16, Lord, and it's a message that uh, that is plainly clear and that we need to know within our hearts and share with others and then other times it's uh, just a, a little deeper. And I thank you for that. Lord, it doesn't make it any more important but it does show our desire to grow in your word and to know you more. You would not have put things in here if they weren't for our benefit. So I thank you. I thank you for your patience when we maybe go down uh, trails that we don't necessarily need to go down but that's part of our learning journey and I thank you that your spirit helps us with that and interprets things and and I thank you for each other Lord that you've brought us together so that we can encourage each other and discuss these things with each other and and know your word better corporately and not just individually Uh, so I pray your blessing on this time as well as uh, the service as well as tonight Lord that this day honor you and I just thank you for the start we're getting off to in Jesus name Amen Alright, here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 28 say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. That's what we're looking at today. And as you'll notice in the first couple verses, it is referring to Christ being raised from the dead, um, which is where uh, Mike and Len have been for the last two weeks. This is actually our third week in 1 Corinthians 15. uh, And they both spent time on on, uh, noticing that Paul was emphasizing the bodily resurrection from the dead. Um, I openly say that that's not something that I really ever spent much time thinking about. Um, When I think resurrection from the dead, I simply think that I will not stay dead, that I will rise again just as Christ rose again. Um, What form my body will be in or anything like that, God still has to keep working on my heart there. That's somewhat new to me to be something that... uh, that I might have to spend more time thinking about. But as I talk about um, resurrection here, I'm, I'm 
talking more just in a general sense, that of course we are wasting our time if we don't believe that there is life after this and that that life will be with our Savior. So the word resurrection or bodily resurrection is not going to be my focus today, and it shouldn't be, because God gave me this passage, um, which isn't focused so much on the resurrection. Um, It's focused on a lot of things, though. There's a lot in here, and I can pretty much tell you we're not going to deeply unpack any of it. But in general, as I read and read, and that's what I do, I'll read, I'll meditate, I'll think about it, I'll go down rabbit trails, I'll whatever, and little by little, God is so good, he brings clarity to what he's speaking to me. Now, that's the way it has to be. I can't worry, what am I supposed to speak to Matt? I can't. That's not my job. My job is, Lord, how is your word speaking to me, and now how can I share it with others? So as you can see from the title of the notes, what spoke to me here most is that Christ is referred to as first fruits. Now, it's only referred to it once. Why would that one word stick out to me so much? Well, I think some of you know. Some of you know because you come to night service and you know that we have been trudging our way through books like Leviticus. It has not been easy. It has been a lot of work, but it has most certainly been a blessing. And this is proof that it's a blessing to me because that word first fruits means something different to me now than it would have a year ago or whenever we started Leviticus. So that's why my title is First Fruits Then and Now, meaning what was first fruits then and how can that help me better understand what first fruits are now? I've got to assume most of us have a general, if not working knowledge of first fruits, common sense knowledge. Well, duh, John, first fruit. Like, isn't it kind of self-explanatory? Yes and no. It depends how much you want to be able to take from this. Does first fruit represent first fruit? Yes, it most certainly does. Does first fruit represent the first of the fruit that is being produced from something? Yes. But how it spoke to my heart is because first fruits meant more than that in the Old Testament, I'm going to compare that to what we're reading. When I say now, I don't mean 2024. I mean now, 1 Corinthians 15. I mean Christ. I'm going to make some parallels that really spoke to my heart. And we'll see if it spoke. Um, we'll see how it speaks to you as well. So, for example, the first thing about first fruits. First fruits, then and now, was and is an offering. Now, maybe you knew that, but when I think first fruits, offering is not the first thing I think of. Like I said, no, it's the first fruit. It's the first result of my labor. You know, I can look at my son and say that he is the first fruit of my marriage with my wife. He is proof that that God brought us together and he is our firstborn. Or you go to the restaurant and they got that $20 bill taped to the... (laughs) That's not because they're afraid they might run out of money. That's them saying this is the first fruit of this business. It's not natural to look at first fruit as an offering because an offering is something you give and usually first fruit is something you get, right? Produce. And yet we know from the book of Leviticus that first fruits was most certainly an offering. Now, I think it only, hopefully it says 2.14. I was going to read all of chapter 2. Just, you'll see why in a second, but I limited it to verse 14. So Dave, sir, could you just read for me on the back, Leviticus 2.14. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. Okay, so here we go. Pop quiz. You do not have to answer, because if you were in night service, maybe you don't remember. And if you weren't in night service, no offense, you probably don't know. I wouldn't have been able to answer this. 
But here we go. Few questions. How many core offerings? And I have to word it that way because I know they had kind of side ones and stuff. Core offerings do we learn about in the book of Leviticus? It's between four and six, if that helps. Five. All right. Very good math majors in the room. There was the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was the most general and comprehensive of all offerings because that offering was not given because you sinned. It was given in acknowledgement that you were a sinner. That's it. It was done all the time. A burnt offering was being given up, not for any specific reason, but simply because who are we as sinners to come into the presence of a holy God? And what was unique about the burnt offering is that the entire thing was sacrificed on the altar. It's the only offering where none of it was put to the side, none of it was eaten, none of it was taken out of the camp. The whole thing was consumed. There was a burnt offering. There was also something called a grain offering, which Dave just read now. And the grain offering was pretty much always incorporated with the burnt offering in acknowledgement that, yes, we're not allowed to come into... uh, Sorry, we're not worthy to come into God's presence, and yet he still allows us to. And the grain offering was an offering of dedication and devotion to this God that, wow, how blessed we are to come into your presence. We are going to offer a grain offering. If you were in night service, you might remember, it was some fine flour where God said, you give a little to me first, just a little, a memorial portion to show that it's mine, but then give the rest to the priests. And that's just so beautiful of what God does for us. Everything we have is his. But he says, yes, but just give me my first fruits and use the rest for why I have you here. To support the church, to support your family, to support whatever it might be. There was a grain offering. Then there was a peace offering, which wasn't so that you could have peace with God. It was an acknowledgement that you had peace with God. It was, there was three types. It could just be that you wanted to thank him. There was a thanksgiving offering. There was a vow offering. If, if God fulfilled a vow and you wanted to thank him, and there was just a free will offering. You just, you just wanted to do it. And what was unique about it is that was the only offering an animal was killed, but the priest and the offerer could eat the offering. That was kind of awesome. They could have a meal together. They could commune together in the presence of God, of course. But that was the idea of a peace offering. Just, just that we are at peace because of what God did for us. Then there was a sin offering, which was specific to the sin. You know, you committed a sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So an animal had to be killed. This, the first three were voluntary. This one wasn't. If you sinned, you were expected to kill an animal as a replacement for the price of paying for that sin. And then there was a guilt offering, which means you sinned, but it was the type of sin that you could actually give restitution for. You could make up for. You were expected to. Now, that was way too fast. We're not in Leviticus. I get it. But which one was the first fruits? It's right there. It was the grain offering. Now, in that purposely quick, because this is a quiz, in that purposely quick review, what was unique about the grain offering? Because some of you might think that the first bullet is a grain offering, and it's not. So you might have to get out your eraser. Does anyone remember what was unique about the grain offering? Unlike the burnt, peace, sin, and guilt. No blood was shed. It was the only offering, so that's what goes in the blank. It was a bloodless sacrifice. The only one. 
The only one where it wasn't about acknowledging sin or acknowledging that we're sinners, but just showing a devotion to God because of his willingness to, quote, put up with us. Forgive us. Show forgiveness. Show an ability to have those sins paid for. So when you hear the word first fruit, you should associate that with a bloodless sacrifice. A sacrifice that kind of comes because the blood has been shed, if that makes any sense. If it doesn't, then ask me later, because I've prayed many times that I not make you more confused today. Okay? But, now fast forward to Christ. If I asked you, was Christ an offering for our for us. Was Christ an offering for us? Oh my goodness, if you've never stepped foot in a church before, I've got to think your answer is going to be, yes, because he died on the cross for our sins. Agreed? That's how we always focus on the offering. Yes? And you should. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Christ's death is a beautiful picture of the burnt peace, sin, and guilt offering. But guess what? Christ's death is not represented by a grain offering. Guess what's represented by the grain offering? His resurrection. So that's the second bullet. When you hear first fruits, just don't... Again, it is first fruit. I'm not arguing. But don't limit it to, well, that just means he went first and then we're going to go later. Maybe that's the daily bread answer. But aren't we here to like dig into it a little bit more? When first fruits was offered in the Old Testament, it was the only offering. It wasn't a first fruit offering, it was a grain offering. But when first fruits were offered, they were offered as a grain offering, which was very uniquely the offering that occurred after you acknowledged that blood had been shed and that you were now in communion with him. Well, that's what his resurrection is to us. His resurrection is a type of offering, but the offering that took place after he sacrificed for our sins. I, I hope that's making sense. It spoke to my heart because I've said this to people, but I'm pretty sure also from the pulpit. If you ask me, is the death or the resurrection more important? I would go to the death. I would say the death because as God, he was going to resurrect. He just was. He, if he didn't resurrect, he wasn't God. So I hate to say that I take the resurrection for granted, but because he's God, I'm not that surprised he rose again. But oh my goodness, I never want to be comfortable with, well, and of course he died for me. He had to. God told him to. Oh, that's a very entitled and spoiled attitude. I forever want to be thankful that he chose to die for my sins. If he didn't choose to die, then resurrecting wouldn't mean anything anyway. So I had a very limited, not, I had an appreciation of the resurrection. I'm thankful he did, but I kind of took it for granted because... He's God, of course he resurrected. But then as I think about it, and again, if you want to correct me, maybe correct me later, because I don't know what roads we might go down here. But if we could separate the death and the resurrection, the death is what paid for my sin. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There could have been a parallel universe where God said, you deserve to go to hell, but my son's going to die so that you don't have to. Dot, 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 open-ended, no idea. You understand? Oh, good, I'm not going to hell, which I'm not downplaying at all. I thank God eternally that I'm not going to hell. But if I see the death as paying for my sin, I need to see the resurrection 
as, yeah, you're not just going to hell. I am accepting you into communion with me. Uh, that word first fruit, and I wrote it down and then I forgot to bring it, but it's a Greek word that was very commonly used back then as an entrance fee. Isn't that so interesting? That it's the fee they would pay to be able to enter into something. So as Christ is our first fruits, we can kind of see him not just as the first one. Yes, he is the first one because he rose, we will rise. But he is our entrance fee. And that entrance fee isn't really paid by his death. His death is what means I don't have to go to hell. I'm assuming that that's what Paul is referring to when he says, if Christ has not risen, we, well, actually he says we're still in our sin. You could even say that even that, it's a package deal. It's not a, well, he died and that's the price and he rose again. Of course he did because he's God. I, I've learned from that. God has really shown me that in his economy and in his perfect plan, no, the death and the resurrection are a combined deal. And when he is our first fruits, his death and his resurrection are an offering to the Lord that not only pay for my sin, but allow me entrance into eternity. I hope that makes sense. But as usual, let me let scripture speak for itself. Sean, can you read for me Hebrews 10, 12 to 14? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made to put still for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, I put all those verses because they actually summarize everything we're looking at here. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It makes it sound like he made a payment and then he rose again and went up. That's how I would have normally looked at it. But then you look at that last verse, for by a single offering, which is actually a different word than the word sacrifice, he has perfected or completed for all time those who are being sanctified. I believe what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is the death and the resurrection are a single sacrifice, a single offering, an offering that paid for our sin, but also an offering that gives us entrance into eternity. Again, I can't ask you to sit here for five minutes and understand something that I've been trying to wrap my mind around for two months, but I hope it speaks to your heart. Don't just let first fruits mean, well, he went first and we'll go later. That's very true. But it's actually an offering to God. God could have just said, okay, he paid for your sin, you're not going to hell. But he said, no, no. And he rose again. I, I accept that offering. Um, I wasn't going to go down this road, but now I'll say it. You know, did Christ earn the right to go back to you know, be seated at the right hand of the Father. It's kind of a stupid question. He's God. But doesn't it say that God gave him a name above every other name? Right? Doesn't Scripture really imply that God accepted that sacrifice? Not just his death. There could have been a parallel universe where we have a Bible full of verses that tell us, and Jesus loved us so much that he gave up his Godhead. That he came down and he died, and he's not God anymore, but that's okay, because he loves you so much. No. I'm so thankful, no. No. God didn't say, well, if you don't want John to die, Jesus, then you have to die. We're done. No. He died. He did what had to be done for my sins to be paid for. And then God accepted him right back, if I can use that human terminology, seated him at the right hand, gave him a name that above every other name, all the bases are covered. So that was just a beautiful tie-in that God spoke to my heart about what first fruits really was in Leviticus, as well as how Christ 
fulfills that. All right, but let's keep moving. That was verse 20, that if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, then we have verse 21 and 22 says, well, no, don't let me read that yet. The second thing that first fruits was and is, is a feast. Did you know that there was a feast of first fruits? Maybe you did. But again, do you really associate offering and feast in the same thought? Like, isn't offering giving something up? Isn't offering sacrificing something and being willing to give it? Whereas feast, last I checked, is all about me getting. If I'm going to a feast, I don't plan on giving up much except my willpower. I, that's all about me. And yet here, first fruits was an offering, and it was also a feast. Joey, can you read Leviticus 23, 9 to 14? The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wait the sheep <coughs> so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wait the and on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a, man, a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an of a ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hymn. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched but fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. I can't get this smirk off my face because I'm looking around the room and I feel like most of us do tend to come to night service but if you don't, you must be sitting there like they study this stuff? <laughs> I know, you're right Like, I actually thank God I'm getting a little used to this you know, it used to scare me off and now I'm like, yeah no, I, I get this stuff what, what God is telling Moses is tell the people when you come into the land that I give you when you reap its harvest, bring the first fruits to me, the first fruits, as far as uh, this goes, was in April. It was at the beginning of the spring harvest. Uh, it was during what was actually called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It started with Passover, and two days later, you were doing the Feast of First Fruits. You were offering up to God the first bits of barley, because that was the first thing that would come into harvest. And as soon as it came up, you plucked it and you gave it to God. Okay? It was an offering. So how in the world is that a feast? It's because of what that offering represented. They realized that God is the one who provided everything. And because God was the one who provided everything, they were going to give back to him because they knew that he was going to provide for them. I'm going to say this a little bit more later, but pagan societies would do this as well. At the beginning of a harvest, they would offer up part of that harvest to their deity god, their false god. Why? Sir, could you predict why? Why might they say, God, whoever, we offer this up to you at the beginning of the harvest? Expectations of it? Yeah, because we want him to be happy with us. Because if we don't do this, he might not give to us. It was almost like a, an investment, <laughs> you know? We're going to give you this because we want... That, that wasn't the Israelites. Not the Israelites. The other ones wanted to gain favor with their God. The Israelites knew they had favor with their God. They knew that they could confidently offer this up to God and not go without. 
and look back one day and say, oh man, if we didn't give up that original, now I don't have enough. They knew God was going to provide. And because they knew God was going to provide, they could step out in faith, make an offering, but that offering was part of a feast because they were celebrating another harvest that was going to come and that God was going to bless them with. So as far as the blanks go, the, the first fruit as a feast, it was a celebration of God's physical provision. That they knew that God was the one who was giving them everything anyway. So of course it was only common sense that as soon as something come up, we give it to God. It was God telling them to do it. They, they didn't come up with this idea. But again, God didn't want all of it. He just wanted them to acknowledge, you know I'm the one who's going to give you this. So give some to me, trusting that I will give to you. Um, because once I realized I was going to preach on first fruits, of course I go looking all over, you know, commentaries, YouTube, whatever, whatever. And it's almost sad how first fruits is almost only defined this way. Like everywhere you look is a, oh yes, give a first fruit offering to God because our church started doing that and now we have an abundance. That, that, that's not it. It's, it's, it's not give to God so that you can get back. But oh my goodness, we should celebrate that God, God does bless us. We don't have to twist his arm or convince him or make him an offer he can't refuse. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who provides. So why wouldn't we celebrate that fact by offering up the first fruits? How does that relate to Jesus? Well, what does verse 21 and 22 of our passage say? For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So the reason we, Christ is an offering, but he's also a feast, because we see here a celebration I wrote of God's eternal provision. That God has something in place that we already know we can count on. We know is going, is, is a, we're not hoping he takes care of this sin problem. It's taken care of, and we can celebrate that it's taken care of. That when Christ is first fruits, I'm going to keep saying it, it doesn't just mean he goes first and we go later. There's a celebration there. Yes, in his death, but more in his resurrection. He rose again. He showed victory. I don't want to get ahead, but that eternally we can rest in the fact of knowing that we are provided for. So, sir, can you read for me Romans 6, 4, and 5? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Yeah, I, again, sometimes i got to be careful with... But it doesn't say that just as Christ died, we too may die. You understand? If he was the first fruits of death, that would mean, well, he died and so later we'll die. I, I don't think that's how we're supposed to look at it. We are the first fruits of his resurrection, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, interestingly, that walk in newness of life is aorist. aorist. Don't worry about that. It just means it's not a future thing. It's something that should be happening now. But then, um, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's future tense. That's something for us to look forward to, which is what's going to get me to the third point where we'll spend the rest of our time, because that is what most people think about 
first fruits, but just, yes, he, he's an offering, not just his death. His resurrection is an offering to God that shows that our sin isn't just paid for, but also that we can have fellowship with the Father. It's a feast, it's a celebration. Because it isn't just that he died, it's that he died and rose again, which means we know the same will happen for us. And then the last bullet, the one that we all tend to go with and that I've tried to avoid saying, it was and is an expectation. Right? That's what we think first fruits means. If it wasn't first fruits, it would just be fruits. You understand? If I give you fruit, you don't necessarily know if any more is coming. But if I say, well, here's the first fruit, by definition, don't you expect more to come? And in the Old Testament, that was a big part of what the Israelites were doing as they offered things up to God. Dino, could you read for me Leviticus 23, 15 to 17? And you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep and the wave off. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be weighed, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall eat of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Okay. So again, there's a lot there, but as far as what we're referring to, God made what was called a, a feast calendar. It, it was really kind of cool. We called it mandatory merriment. Uh, that, that, that God said, you will celebrate this. And, you know, well, of course, I love to celebrate. No, no, no. You're going to celebrate for my glory. You will celebrate at the beginning of the spring harvest because you know I'm going to provide for you. And as you're getting ready for that, you're already planning out 50 days later for the Feast of Weeks or of Pentecost where you're going to give me the first fruits of the last. You understand? Like there was always that expectation. It wasn't, whoa, 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 God, can we get through spring first and then see if you provide for the fall? No. It was always with the expectation, of course he's going to provide. So we will take what, he, what we see popping up first. Lord, this is yours because we know it's going to keep coming. And we know it's going to keep coming in the spring and we know it's going to keep coming in the fall. And then after the fall, they would have a week-long festival as they prepared to get ready for the next spring. Like There was just always that sense of expectation. And that's what we should have. And that's definitely what Paul is mostly talking about here when he says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is an expectation that as Christ rose from the dead, so will we. I have to pause there at least momentarily. I mean, I, I'm looking at every face here, and I cannot imagine that there's anyone here who doesn't have that confidence or that expectation, but I don't want to take that for granted. Christ died so that our sins would be forgiven. He rose again as proof that we will also rise again. And you're about to say something because he wasn't supposed to walk out the door. So now, now the pressure's going to be on you, Alvin. I didn't know that was going to happen. So anyway, um, what I wrote first was Romans 8.23. I wrote that as far as our, I'm just going to read that. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Right? We should have that sense of expectation. I've shared that I struggle with that. God's blessed me so much down here that I'm kind of enjoying it. 
You know, do I want to go to heaven? Yeah. Do I want to go today? Eh, don't necessarily need to. And yet the second my world's falling apart around me, guess what I'm going to all of a sudden be saying? I can't wait to go to heaven. Like that, that's, that's not the way it should be. I have to have that happy balance. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't feel guilty that God has blessed me. I thank him that he blessed me. But I've got to realize that the only reason he hasn't taken me home yet is because he still has things he wants me to do with those blessings. So my expectation isn't just that heaven awaits me, but that he's going to show me why I'm still down here. And that he's going to show me how to use these blessings that he's given me. So that, that spoke to my heart. But that's not really what Paul's saying here. So that last bullet, oh I'm sorry, the first fruits then was just a future harvest. Right? Harvest is always a good word. The harvest is reaping the benefit of what you sowed. But for Christ, Paul very much focuses on future victory. Does that mean we don't have victory now? Of course we do. But Paul is referring to future victory. Um, so, what I was going to say, if you don't remember, it's okay. But Alvin did a great job yesterday at the men's uh, Bible study going over the whole no graven image idea. In fact, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'll, I'll just say it. Um, and we had a really good discussion. I really enjoyed it. There was probably a good 12 to 15 men. There were a bunch of guys there. And we were discussing how, you know, if it's a golden calf, okay, fine. You know, but what if it's a picture of Jesus? You know, is that a graven image if it's a picture of Jesus? And we pretty much said, well, you know, if that picture of Jesus represents the limit of who you think Jesus is, let's be honest, he, he might look compassionate. He might look suffering. But however he looks, let's just pretend it's a picture of Jesus looking up to heaven going like this. Well now all of a sudden if that's your only picture of him guess what you expect? Oh, he's loving, he's merciful, he's forgiving, look how kind he is, how could this guy ever send anyone to hell? You understand? Like, your mind can go so down the road if you allow that to be your picture of who Jesus is. Um... I don't watch The Chosen, but The Chosen was brought up on how, you know, maybe they have good intentions when they do that. But there are people out there who actually read what's in the Bible and compare it to what they see on The Chosen. Oh, the Bible must mean this because I saw on The Chosen. That's dangerous. You understand? I'm saying these things because of our expectation. Our expectation can be bad if it's based on what we expect. And Joey brought up a good point. It's just he left that even that picture of Jesus, it's kind of on me if I only see him as loving and compassionate as kind. He said that if I grow in my knowledge of who God is, I can look at that same exact picture and see a just God, a judge. I can see all of those things and yet the picture didn't change. You understand? So I say that because as we look at expectation here, I don't know what body to expect. I don't know what heaven's going to be. You understand? Like, it's nice to think about those things, but those shouldn't be our expectations. Oh, it's going to be like this, and I'm going to be like this, and, and I'm going to recognize this person, and I'm going to ask Moses this. And look, there's nothing wrong with that, but don't lock into that. The expectations that Paul listed are all about Christ's victory. That we can expect. That we can cling to. And there were three areas that Paul lists victory. Um, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So yes, he is the first fruit. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God 
to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, again, we're not going to get into this, but this is where a lot of people refer to the millennium. They believe that Jesus is going to come down at some point, rule on earth for a thousand years, and then at the end of those thousand years, Satan's going to be released, man is going to rebel, and that's where Christ is going to conquer his enemies. I don't believe that. That's not our official position as a church. We don't make a big deal about this. But we tend to be what is more called amillennialist. That the millennium is a figurative period of time that started at the cross. And that Christ reigns in our hearts. And that it's not a literal thousand years, because very often the Bible uses a thousand years figuratively, but that he is reigning in our hearts while enemies are still around us. Enemies from without and within. But there should be an expectation that Christ is going to get victory over those enemies. It's not just he's going to defeat Satan. Yes, once you knock Satan down, I guess you could say everything. But everything, every stronghold, every, everything is going to be defeated. So my first bullet is that he will have victory over enemies. Daniel 7, 14. Oh, let's go with Franz, sir. It's on the back. Daniel 7, 14. <laughs> Okay, so I don't plan on spending a lot of time there. It, it speaks for itself. But the point is, yeah, we have to have an expectation, not of what heaven's going to look like or what my body's going to look like or any of that. We can study that stuff. We can let God speak to our heart. But you better have an expectation that Christ is going to have victory over his enemies, over sin, over death, which is what we're going to get to next, over Satan. Um, I don't have it in here, but a lot of you know, uh, we've heard of Armageddon, yes? And how long does Armageddon last? About a second. Because in one verse it says that Satan will rally all of the men, all of mankind against God, and then the very next verse it says, and God will send Satan to the pit of hell. And we'll, like, there is no Armageddon. <laughs> When, when Christ is ready, he wins. And yes, we've already won, but we're going to see a verse later on that says we just don't see that yet. We, we have to expect it. We have, he is our first fruits. There is a sense of expectation that he'll have victory over his enemies. There's also a sense of expectation. Verse 28, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, sometimes I go down these deep roads. Is death even an enemy? I mean, I'm enjoying my life here, and if, it, you know, I die and become fertilizer, is that the biggest deal? I mean, I enjoyed the, right? Go ahead, sir, yeah, say something. I, I think of the, you know, Paul, to be, or to live is, well, to die is game. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 To be honest, death is an enemy in that, from an unbeliever and a believer's point of view, death is actually an enemy because once they die, they've lost their last opportunity to accept Christ as their Savior. But for us, death would be an enemy if once death came, we were separated from God. That's why Christ had to conquer death. So that there wouldn't be that separation. So that we can forever be with Him. That's why 
I don't know who's going to have it. I didn't bother looking. But later in this chapter, we'll get there at some point, the famous verses, oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I spent many of... I'll say I got saved in fourth grade. Can, can we leave the deep elect thoughts out of that? But oh my goodness, did I spend many of those years glad I was saved because I didn't want to go to hell. You know what I mean? That's where we get the phrase, you weren't saved from something, you were saved for something. Christ conquers death so that we can spend eternity with him. Not so that, oh good, oh I was so afraid of dying. Thank you Dave for saying, actually death is gain for the believer. They'll be in God's presence, but only because Christ had victory over it. And that has to be our expectation. That he will have victory over his enemies. That he will have victory over death. Which is what's going to allow us to spend eternity with him. And then lastly, I put quotes around it. His victory over all. Why are there quotes around it? Good. I'm glad that I can. Because of how these last few verses go. Look at verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What in the world? Kathy, why is that smirk on your face? Yeah, that is a tongue twister. Oh my goodness, but oh my goodness, is it important? And as we like to say, I sure hope I'm preaching to the choir, but not everyone out there is the choir. You better believe those verses can very easily be interpreted as, see, I told you Jesus was lower than God. Right? Because it says that he's going to put everything under subjection to him, but it's not everything because it says that God gave him those things, so God's not going to be, he's going to be in subjection to God. No, that's for our benefit. It's the role. The Godhead has roles. God the Father will always be God the Father. God the Son will always be God the Son. Do I think Paul had to put that in there? Well, divinely, yeah, he was told to. He was told to make sure that as he was talking about Christ's victory over everything, nobody took that and ran and said, oh yeah, oh, even God's going to be under him. He is God. And for God to be all in all, we have to have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And each one will play their role while we're here on earth. And each one will play their role for eternity. And that, I feel, is the third thing that Paul says has to be our expectation. All right, so did I give you anything deep today? Probably not. I, I, I'm not, you know, there's, there's different directions we could have went in here, federal head and all of those things. But I just really enjoyed how I read that word first fruits and my mind went to Leviticus. Like, that, that blows my mind. Like, I never go to Leviticus. Well, I do now because of the time we spent. And I look forward to the day that I say, and I go to Numbers, and I go to Deuteronomy. We're just, we're growing in his word. But just don't limit that phrase, first fruits, as a simple order. Well, Jesus died, rose again, someday we'll die, rise again. Yes, but it's so much more. His resurrection was an offering to God that, that not only paid for our sins, but was our entrance fee to spend eternity with him. It's a feast. It's a celebration in that offering because he is our eternal provision and he has eternal 
again, he has victory now, but we have an expectation of future victory over enemies, over death, and over everything that he is supposed to have dominion over. Alright, so hopefully your head's not spinning too much. Definitely want you to walk away feeling like you are closer to God than you were, not further. But uh, that's the Spirit's job. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Uh, you know that I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. I fully expect you're going to show me things at 2 o'clock that I'm going to wonder why you didn't show me before Sunday school. But that's just how you work. You're constantly revealing things to us, constantly helping us understand you, your son, your spirit better. Um, but I thank you. I thank you. Big picture. Um, that we can tie books like Leviticus to books like First Corinthians. And the more specific picture that I can see your son's resurrection is more than just a matter of fact that you were God, so of course you rose again. That is part of the offering. That is a feast that we celebrate and it is an expectation regardless of what form we take, regardless of how you choose to do it, we expect you to do it. Your word says you will. We cling to it. I pray that we live our lives not just proclaiming that expectation, but living it. Living in a way that shows that we really are committed to your word, that we do truly believe in it, and uh, that we want to be the light that we know you created us to be. So I thank you. I'll pray in advance. Uh, I guess Mike's up next, Lord, as you just keep getting us through this book, but through this chapter, or that you reveal things in a way that only you can, so that we can know you better each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.